Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Friends, welcome to the fourth episode in the How to Live Beyond series of episodes on this podcast. To open 2023, each episode in this series considers a set of tools or way of thinking that are useful, but that we're ready to go beyond in 2023. So we've looked at things like the New Age movement uh, on the first episode in the series with Mitch Horowitz. We've looked at uh, psychedelics and sorcery with Lisa Romero on episode 209. And then on the third installment with Pilar Lesko, it was how to live beyond money magic. These are techniques and traditions that we use to cope with and confront the challenges of our time, but risk, if we can't consider them deeply, getting us stuck in those challenges, or worse, funneling their strengths back into those challenges and driving us deeper into the problem. These episodes aren't a call to forget about these techniques and traditions, but instead to bring them forward to bring forward what they've offered without the barbs of the problems they're tangled up with. This time, it's Faria Roshin on Beyond Wellness. Wellness, I think, (laughs) is synonymous now, almost, with tracking, tracking our lives. Fitbits, exercise journals, food journals, meditation apps, even like Spotify rap to tracking which songs you like best. It's all a kind of data-gathering exercise, which of course mirrors the data-gathering exercises of corporations. And a lot of times this wellness approach of tracking is really just about addressing surface wounds. What if wellness went beyond all of that? Went beyond even what supplements to buy or what exercises to do, what diet plan to follow, how to meditate. What if instead it witnessed the deep wounds and trauma created by materialism? And what if it saw the knives, the weapons that keep rewounding so that we never heal? Uh, colonialism, capitalism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, and more. These are wounds in the erotic, the spiritual, the sacred anatomy, in the healing itself, in speaking, and more. Let me trace the contours of some of those wounds. Sex is a great place to start when we talk about these sites of danger, these wounds. Sex is seen as a site of danger. We rarely talk about sex in terms of anything but harm. All the ways that you can be sexually assaulted, all the ways in which you can get an STI or transmit an STI, all the ways in which you can have an unwanted pregnancy, um, the ways in which lust is bad, in which masturbation is bad. On the other hand, We also seem to talk about sex just in terms of absolute pleasure, without understanding all the other things that sex might be for, and the other ways to encounter sex. Spirituality. Spirituality is a wounding. It's a site of danger. We aren't allowed to bring spirituality into our perspectives in politics. And in fact, it's supposed to be thought of in many leftist spaces as mere adornment to politics when it's not just outright condemned. But then there's the danger of becoming a new age dismisser of politics, of trying to leave the world entirely by just imagining a spirituality, imagining we're all just energy, so who cares? about what happens here politically. 
understanding our own experience. There's a wound there. It's become a site of danger. We're asked to give up our experience and instead just believe in ideas and information all the time. On the other hand, (laughs) many people engage in a shallow principle of lived experience as its own form of damaging ideology, which is just meant to shut everybody else up and to not allow any perspectives or other kinds of growth in. Healing itself is a wound now. It's become a site of danger. We have trouble discussing health in our own terms, especially if our healing comes from forms that are not approved of by allopathic modalities of Western medicine. In fact, some of (laughs) mentions of those things can even be banned now uh, on social media. But the flip side of that is not so great either. You know, the people that don't care about the communities they're in, not listening to the health needs and anxieties of people who do need that allopathic modality, who are accessing it for healing and preventative medicine. Having errors or flaws That itself is wounded now. That is a site of danger. If we talk about how we've been harmed or harm others, we risk deep judgment, especially in a culture which has absorbed the worst aspects of the punitive state and even the cultural state. But on the other hand, (laughs) we might also lose a sense of accountability if our whole approach is, hey, I'm flawed, deal with my mistakes. Yes, I harmed tons of people. That was all part of my process. These are wounds. These are sites of danger, of inflammation. The same way we fear to touch a cut on our body or to look into emotional pain to heal it, we encounter all of these as sites of pain. And like those sites of pain or illness, we often push them to the far edges of our consciousness until it's so distant from us that its damage is only revealed at a critical moment, even a moment where it might seem too late as a surprise diagnosis. I talk about all of these points with Faria Roshin, who is the author of Who is Wellness For? An Examination of Wellness Culture and Who It Leaves Behind, and also the creator of the excellent How to Cure a Ghost newsletter, which shares the title with Faria's first poetry collection. She's also the author of the novel of Contact with Death and Spiritual Healing Like a Bird. This episode is a declaration of commitment to integrity and spirit and the deep trust that it can bring, which is a different form of wellness. And as Faria shows us, we need to unhook all the cables and lines that have snared us because so many snares are created to silence this kind of trust, to silence declaration of commitment, to make the honest voice inaccessible to us. In her book, who is wellness for she writes to mystify without engagement is a silencing tactic i love that because it shows us how many times aspects of our lives that are crucial for our vitality are mystified and then not engaged with so they can be dismissed like spirituality and like sexuality just to name a few and you are your own litmus test we are forced to challenge ourselves to doubt ourselves so many of us don't even believe ourselves like the ways in which you spiritually evolve as you begin to understand that you are a trustworthy person and if you are not a trustworthy person making yourself trustworthy that is the work it's fucking getting yourself back from the hands of these people and being like no i get to be in love with god 
I get to dedicate my life to God. And I understand that this, this path is the only path that I came to do and everything else will fall into place. Mm-hmm. And that my life is that, that there's proof. That vow, however, that declaration, that commitment to God doesn't mean we stay the same always, but rather that we've located our center and that center is a spiritual love. Locating this center actually means that so much will rise and fall and change about us. Our lives are our spiritual text, like the one true spiritual text really is our life. And like any spiritual text, but this one's even more profound, every time you read it, something new comes, you know, something new arrives. Friends, I'll just say that this conversation was really great for me. It was healing for me. It was a new kind of wellness for me. One of the reasons why is because Faria has really cut her own path, as we talk about on the episode. I worked hard to do that too, even as I entered institutions and left institutions, uh, tried to work at some and get degrees from some. I couldn't keep up because their bureaucracy was bullshit. Bureaucracy always demands dishonesty. That's its function in a lot of ways. And so I wasn't able to do it because I was not able to be dishonest. And I love this conversation for saying, no, the priority is actually the declaration, the vow, and finding trust. And that can lead us to finding where the real deep wounds are and working on them to create a radical form of wellness. Please do support this show via patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I know I say it at the beginning of every episode. If you're new here, hello. I say this at the beginning of every episode, but what I don't say is an ad for a product that I don't like pretending that I use it all the time. It's not true. A lot of those people don't use those products, as you probably know, that they advertise for on their podcasts. I don't want sponsors. I want people who engage. I want that kind of reciprocity, like, hey, check it out. You like what I'm doing. Let's support it. Let's give each other a sense of trust through this kind of support. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. It's as close to an honest economic model as is available, I think, for a lot of creators, for a lot of podcasters, for a lot of artists, because you're not saying you're paying me for my labor. You're offering support because you trust and care about what's being offered back to you. Also, please subscribe to the show and share it with friends and buy my novel, Hawk Mountain, which is in many ways a novel about what happens when we refuse to heal our wounds, when we refuse to look at those wounds. It's a pretty deep and intense novel if you don't know it already. All right, that's the pitch. Please do go and support the show, patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. Here's my conversation with Faria Rasheen. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Faria Roshin. Nice to be talking with you. So nice to be talking to you. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so I'm going to start with a quick story. So people who are just here for Faria, just bear with me for a second. We'll get to the other side of it, and <laughs> it's going to kick things off. So I was thinking a lot um, about these two moments when I was in grad school pursuing my MFA in creative writing. And I was also going to school for uh, organismic and evolutionary biology at the time too. And in my creative writing workshops, there were two moments in separate occasions where people like audibly gasped. And one was when somebody brought in a story and there was a certain style of narration and I said, oh, that reminds me of this surah, which is Allah is closer to you than the blood in the vein of your throat. And it's one translation of it. And the person sitting next to me went, oh, and then he said something like, well, yeah, but you don't really believe in that, do you? Or he said, <laughs> he said something like that. And I was just bringing it up to talk about narrative style in a, mm. you know, a story. And then another time was when uh, someone had brought in a story it had a lot of sexual content in it. And the character was very loud and expressive and was cursing elsewhere in the story. When she had sex, she was not using any sort of sexual, like sexually coded words. And I was like, to the woman who was in, wrote the story, I was like, why don't you just have her use the word pussy? This seems really strange to me that like everything else is so like expressive in this way. And someone gasped and said, well, you don't say that in class. And, you know, the woman who wrote the story was like, oh yeah, good point. But <laughs> like, but I, I thought about, I've thought about that and I've marked it as sort of a developmental point for myself many times, the ways in which both sex and God are not allowed into rooms uh, really? where serious discussion, even serious discussion about art, even in places where we're supposed to be learning, they're kind of not allowed in or to express mm. themselves, even sort of metaphorically or rhetorically. And why this brings me to your work, how many places that were wounded, how many places where divides and divorces have been created and generated, and how that means that a picture of wholeness or wellness is not really even available to us because there are so many wounds that we don't see. If I saw someone and said, oh, well, they you know, had a fever, it's obvious that you can point to them and say that they're sick um, or they're going through a disease process or a healing process. But it's very different kind of conversation. And it's the one that I think you're starting and generating, which is so profound, which is, look, we're sick in all these other ways because there's a severing or dismemberment, a quarantining, a banishment of these aspects of our being. And that includes spirituality and sexuality, among other things. And that's making us sick. So how do we even know what wellness is? So can we just start from there and, and move from that kind of wounding? Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's so deep. That's where um, I always used to think of it as a kid. Cause I think in one translation, it's like jugular. He's like as close mm. to you as, you know, and I always used to be like, that's how I learned the word jugular mm. because of that. Sora. Um, I, yeah. Where do I even start? I, I think I'll start with God and sex because those are two things that I think about a lot. And they, I think about, they're very present in everything that I write about because I'm a deeply sexual person who's also like had a very 
I guess, um, a conflicted relationship with sex. You know, like I was sexually abused as a child. I didn't by a parent. And so like that, I think, meant that a part of me was divorced from self from a very young age. But I was hyper-sexualized. And so I thought about sex all the time. And so there was a, a divorce between myself and and this desire because I knew some part of it was bad. But the way that I sort of channeled um, sex as I got older and really sort of in my healing process, I began to see the deeply erotic nature of the not only the existence of sex, but the existence of God and how they are like completely i i think connected and and come from the same source and yet i think because of the way that we look at both of them and our sort of divorce from comprehending the kind of like deeply i think spiritual nature of the act of sex and removing it um i think it's been perverted by humans and it's been perverted through time and i think because of patriarchy and masculinity only a certain kind of sex has been privileged and so we're kind of in this space now trying to <clears throat> summarize and just understand ourselves mm -hmm. through these very kind of like um conflicted and and uh broken images of who we are and that you know is directly linked to wellness it's the same thing you know we don't know who we are because we uh we have been colonized we have been ravaged we have been destroyed through um acts of warfare warfare through acts of capitalism through acts of greed and so we have been pushed to be completely disconnected from ourselves. And there is no, um, you know, foundation of self. And so we don't have access to God and therefore we don't have access to ourselves. Does that make sense? Like, does that? Yeah. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I like the way also that you just sort of ended that there because I think, like, I'm thinking about, you know, you wrote, that sexual life force is everywhere. Right. And I think that this is, right. it's a really important thing to note that when you say a certain version of sex is privileged, it's not just like gay sex or straight sex or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's um, sex itself is everywhere. So mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. is sexual. Maybe we'll get to Freud a little later, not in a disagreeing kind of way, but I think there's a lot of value in his work that maybe we could bring mm -hmm. up. But that is the one thing that he pulled out, I think, in a way that was really important mm -hmm. for people who had Western sort of thinking was that, look, it's not just about knowledge, it's about desire. And we are subjects of desire and yeah. desire is everywhere. It's everywhere. Everything's pulsing with a kind of desire. And when we see sex that way, rather than this is an act, much less a specific act, mm, but mm -hmm, <laughs> actually mm -hmm. it's a mystery, a real mystery mm -hmm, that we can always learn mm -hmm. more from than about. It's always ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes something that is actually kind of like how people give lip service to God. But then mm. 
they kind of, <laughs> but then the next step is kind of like people might be willing to admit God is everywhere, but then they'll still even confine that to a certain region or aspect right. of their lives. And I mean, I think that both those compartmentalizations have uh, maybe there's some something useful in them in a way. You can't always have your nervous system mm. just blown out, you know. Um, but the fact that there's such a radical break yeah. between the two is a sign of that's a that's disease process. That's yeah. I can't be sexual and spiritual in the same place unless I do tantra, which is fine. I'm not saying anything bad about tantra, but it's like. But unless I just locate in this one approved, semi-approved, maybe not kind of way, then I could do it that way, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the Indians, they were really, I feel like, the at the forefront. And thousands of years later, there hasn't been anything that sort of challenges Tantra. and that, Or like not even challenges, like kind of is, the, is, a, is, is looking and, and trying to articulate the same things that I think that the Rishis were trying to do, which is everything is God and therefore everything is sex and therefore everything is love. If we kind of like, you know, it sounds very like woo woo and hokey and like, Oh, okay. But I mean, the more I started to think about my own healing and I started to just sort of like on a fundamental level be like, why is it that like such a generative, beautiful act that is, having sex and, and feeling pleasure, like being in pleasure. Why are these things, you know, sort of, I think like seen as something that like is corrupt and um, like there's there, the, 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 the nefariousness of how we speak about sex in our, you know, current day is, is questionable. Like it is actually really weird to me that like we are so, our society is so overwrought with sex and yet we are still like abuse, assault, you know, these things haven't gone away. They haven't, like we haven't adapted or changed or shifted or evolved as a species with regards to sex. And yet it is permeable, you know, everywhere sex, like sure. Like if you go to Saudi Arabia, you can't see sex, but you feel it on the street. Sure. You, know, like, <laughs> you, you don't, you know, like it's, it's it, women and burkas are still getting raped. Like, it's not like that it's, you don't like confine yourself. Like you hear stories of people doing sh shitty things to women and, and during Mecca, you know, at Mecca, like it's sorry, during Hajj or during Umrah at Mecca, like these things are, you know, like it's so, it's been so corrupted. And I think that, for me and really what I was trying to attempt to do with who is wellness for, but also just what I'm trying to do as a thinker, as a person, as an artist, as a human is I'm trying to understand God in everything. And um, it, I think it is actually deeply Muslim to, to experience God in everything, ex especially sex and like finding a way um, to communicate to that higher self and to communicate to that divine source um, is something that I'm always attempting to do. Yeah. I mean, you're reminding me too, like one of the sort of principles of Christian occultism is the understanding that the healing that Christ did came from his sexual center. So that actually mm. when he healed people, he was bringing forth. Um, now I'm going to say this word, but I mean it in a very specific, 
very particular way was the redeemed sexual energy. And all I mean by redeemed is not that he took it from a place of sin, but actually that he brought it into a full kind of expression of itself, which is a, which is a healing act when we do that with anything, but it happens from that particular aspect of Christ. And so I think that then, you know, we can see the ways in which bringing sex into right relationship with self becomes mm-hmm. something that's profoundly healing. I mean, and I don't mean that we need to do that to heal people who are experiencing disease or whatever on a, on a sort of Western way, but just to say like, it's so fascinating to me that when two people have sex with each other, we in a sort of standard <laughs> enveloping inserting sense we think that we're inside or surrounding each other but we're still outside each other we're still actually recognizing that we're separate and in fact like the sexual act seems to me to be like an acknowledgement that we're separate together which is why like <laughs> You know, you can't ever really be inside someone with your physical body. It's impossible. You're still um, managing the contours of what you're kept out of. So you can't wow. really be in someone in that way. So you say, I'm willing to be alone with you. I'm willing to encounter this aloneness and this separation with you. And if you do that with me, then we recognize that we're both alone. So there we're together. So there is a healing in that separation there that happens with sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I think is like really uh, this, the same thing that you get from God, you know, like mm-hmm. from, and I think that I, I don't remember where in the Quran it says this or what I'm actually remembering, but I do know that something that has brought me a lot of solace over the years. And I think this is maybe just a, teaching I got through osmosis of just watching people um talk about grief but you know it's like in that aloneness that you speak of or like longing whatever longing that you have knowing that that is a longing for God that essentially that 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 space that you want to fill the space that is this you know Mm lacuna like this experience you know like this like absence in your body is really an absence of god and that Mm. if you if you are you know Rumi does it so well with just sort of like is it god is it sex is it a man is it who is he speaking to and that kind of Mm. you know like the, the beautiful nature of just like that is poetry and that is that is the quran like it is deeply poetic and we know that you know it's like when you read the quran you know it's deeply poetic i mean all of the explanations of like not a human couldn't have written this like this like sort of like divine kind of exceptional language and it is because i think it is attempting to understand Mm -hmm. this i think displacement that a lot of humans feel and i think it is part of the human experience that we fill with gadgets that we fill with, you know, uh, things that we think are going to make us feel better. But the only thing that that can be filled with is God. And that 
if God is, if God is all around us, God is also a human, God is also sex. Like there's so many ways that you can also interpret that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's deeply powerful to kind of, I think, reconsider your relationship. And as you said, be in the right relationship with yourself, with your body, with understanding that like so many of us have been wounded by scripture and teachers that have told us that you know x y and z if you have sex then you're going to go to hell and i (laughs) i you know challenge that only because i know a lot of people that were sexually abused by their quran school teachers their the imams that they know you know like people that are respect it's the same thing with the catholic church like this is everywhere it's Mm -hmm. rampant it's not just the Catholic Church. It is the people who have a divine, believe that they have a divine right to God. And so it's like understanding, okay, clearly we can't disconnect completely from, from sex. And even in Islam, like, you know, celibacy isn't really a good thing. It's like, you should have sex. Like you should, you know, like people, like it's, 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 it's a normal act you know, and and I think that we've it's in having it be perverted through our our early life experiences and the kind of transgressions that many of us have experienced makes it an uglier thing. But the more that you look at it, confront it, face it, understand why others have misused it, understand what is happening when others misuse it, I think that is this holistic healing process and understanding that there is no division, I think has been really helpful for me, that it is an act of God. All these thoughts that I had when I was reading your work, they were all like pointing to a sense of wholeness and look at where we've allowed ourselves to experience lack when it's not actually there, um, Mm. but actually to reveal to ourselves where the wholeness is even in that sense of missingness that we have and that Mm. is the foundation of so many schools of philosophy and psychoanalysis and spirituality and new ageism and all that kind of stuff um so i love that i mean i think (laughs) i wrote an essay years ago i forget what it was called but it was something like uh a culture that's sick about sex will never mm. understand sexual health or something like that. Mm-hmm. Cause it was during me too stuff. And I kept thinking about the ways in which like the height of me too. And I was just kept thinking about why is everybody talking about understanding what healthy, normal sexuality is like, as if there's some healthy baseline that we've discovered that we can point to, we might know what violation is in some instances, but we can't point to what health is because we've never been healthy in Western culture with this. And so it would find itself uh, expressed in many ways and little things that people would say here and there, like people saying, you know, that producer asked me back to his hotel room to have sex, to be in the movie. I, and I'm not a whore. I'm not a prostitute. How dare he? And I was like, well, wait, (laughs) it's fine. (laughs) We should be objecting. And it's not to pick on this or that person that said that it's fine. But why is it then dead end itself into a comment on sex workers or the ways that certain people 
do utilize sex in that yeah. way or you know for whatever purposes sex workers might be using it for mm-hmm. and so that w- those were just sort of little ways but then i was thinking about it again recently so in ireland you know i mean homosexuality is recently legal in ireland and wow. gay marriage is recently yes. you know legal actually in a really beautiful way because it happened through referendum like people mm-hmm. voted on it mm-hmm. as a country to affirm it but sexual conversations are pretty new here at all much less mm-hmm. you know those kinds and i saw an ad the other day they the the health service played it before a movie it was a bit strange for an american to see something like this before a movie but they were showing a group of an actual group of people in a room watching videos that had been staged and scripted of things that they you kind of got the idea that they were supposed to interpret them as sexual assault or sexual violence but they were kind they were dismissing them Um, so like in one, there was a guy sitting in front of his computer and a woman who was his boss, put her hands on his shoulder and people were like, oh, well, they're just at work. And some of them were like really weirdly framed in such an, like (laughs) seemingly deliberately ambiguous way. There's a woman passed out on the street and some man like lifted her up and the people watching were like, oh, he's probably just helping her. There were some guys in a locker room, like pulling towels off of each other. There was another one of like, um, what do I say? Uh, Anyway, without going through all the examples, some of them were quite like, well, there wasn't any context given to the viewer, at least of the ad. I don't know about the people in that room, but then it ends with Mm. zero tolerance for sexual, for gender-based violence. That was what it said. And like, thanks to the, you know, health service here. And I, I kept thinking like, I was really bothered by it. Not because some of those things could have been sexual violence and maybe people did misinterpret or whatever. I don't know. But I kept thinking like, how is a nation that has just moved from Catholicism and no one's supposed to touch or fuck anyone like outside of the one way that the state, which is owned by the church, basically approves it. And now we're moved right into this conversation Mm. about the ways that we signal and allow touch with each other. And I, and I kept also racking my brains. It's like, how do I even fucking talk about this without like, I mean, I'm not, I don't care if people get upset with me, but without like actually kind of misstepping, checking, not checking myself. I mean, I, I know when my lights light up as, you know, someone who's been sexually abused um, and assaulted, like I know when I'm like, no, mm-hmm. be careful what you're mm-hmm. saying, you know? So, but I just thought like the ways that a sexually unhealthy culture can even try to move towards sexual health. So distorted and so difficult. And I understand it's just maybe just a really messy kind of thing, but when those kinds of things are are like immediately encoded into legal and law Mm -hmm. language, Mm -hmm. then you're like, who's this protecting and who is this for? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially when, I mean, when was gay marriage legalized? 2017? Or I should know, but I think it was before then. I think it was 2015. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So very recent. Um, and as you said, you know, the state is 
the state is owned by the church and we know what the church does you know it's like it's like the catholic it's like the catholic church is when we come to like sexual assault it's like it's they're, the best example of that is is sadly the Catholic Church. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, yeah, it's so, I think we're at this really interesting time where also I think a lot of people think that they're experts because they read articles or, you know, they're not understanding that this work is needed in the community. This is not just a conversation that you wouldn't have before a movie, you know, like it, without any instruction or yeah, mm-hmm. without any dialogue, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's punishing. And it's like, it, you know, it's, it's weirdly shameful. And I think that that's what media always does. It shames you. Mm-hmm. And there's no actual, mm-hmm. you know, reliance on like, okay, like even pedophilia or incest you know these things happen they don't happen just in but fuck nowhere country you know they happen everywhere everywhere this is happening and i think as an incest survivor and someone who says that out loud like i was in indonesia last year i i I talked at both i did a book stuff at both both in indonesia and germany at, at the end of last year and I'm very open about what has happened to me. And, you know, I wrote an entire book about it, basically. But um, it was so painful and yet beautiful to see how I was speaking at this book festival in Indonesia. And afterwards, I did this this panel and um, it was the last panel I did. And afterwards, I had... I think roughly like 20 people lined up people who had no idea who I was like, weren't like, you know, like fans, like had just truly only saw me in this panel and needed to share what Mm. happened to them. And this happens to me everywhere I go. (laughs) It happened in Germany, you know, and it's like people that are like what you are sharing, like also happened to me. And sometimes it's coded. Sometimes it's vague. Sometimes there's a lot of people crying, you know, it's just, it's truly profound to experience this. And every single time I realize we don't have, we have no conversation about sex. Like we really have no awareness. The fact that like, even during me too, that they could be shitting on sex workers. It's like, there's no nuance of how we are interacting with sex. And it's like, a lot of that comes back to, I think what we originally were talking about this under this like this this conditioning that we've experienced which is yeah sex can only be one way all the other ways are bad mm-hmm. and if you're not doing so so there's that sex and then god is a, an entirely different thing <laughs> and that's that's over there and there's no um there's no way for us to sort of make that connection unless we are doing that with ourselves and starting with ourselves and having an awareness of like, this is why this happened to me. Or if there's no explanation, sometimes you don't know why something happened to you. Like, I don't know why parents sexually abuse their children. I have absolutely no fucking idea why, but I also know that, um, I know statistically, like if you have, if you were abused, you're more likely to abuse someone else, you know? And so like, 
having just compassion for that statistic and understanding like that's true doing that work with myself not victimizing myself feeling that pain and that trauma and allowing myself to feel like a victim if I need to but then also knowing that that's Mm. I don't want to stagnate in that feeling I want to come out of that and so that's been a lot of the last couple of years for me and that has been what my sexual healing has looked like you know, sort of being protective of my body, understanding the mechanisms of what happened to me and and why I arrived at this place and why I was disassociating for so many years and why I was, you know, you know, I, like I, I'm very self-destructive. I'm a deeply self-destructive person. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I had to, uh, I started writing about self-care was because I was like, I can't self-destruct anymore. I have to find reliable ways, sustainable ways to take care of myself. And I was fortunate enough, you know, um, to start reading the works of Audrey Lord and Bell Hooks. You know, this was in 2014 when really nobody was talking about self-care. Mm-hmm. And that's really when I started to kind of move past and comprehend a different kind of future for myself but it also meant that I had to had to acknowledge all of the things that had brought me into that place a lot of the sexual harm that I probably imposed onto other people you know because I was harmed you know it's like taking accountability and having a full spectrum awareness of like right I am also a, a person in this I'm also you know, uh, a human who is going to falter, who is going to have to, you know, uh, face and acknowledge certain things about myself. You know, we were saying this before, you know, even just relationships, like they, they really challenge you because they make you see all of the holes in your healing and all of the ways in which you haven't yet healed. And I, I find that like the only way, and and this is maybe why I I wanted to write so much about this is the only way that we can as a society evolve and heal sexually is if we start to do that work with ourselves and we understand like how powerful and potent that work is and how, you know, I think it has led me to sort of finding a that that everything is deeply erotic because everything is like if 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 we are you know even just plants nature it's deeply deeply erotic mm-hmm. and and i think that eroticism is not the same as sex and that's still where we're at you know we you know we don't we don't see like i wonder if transgression happens because we don't when when we feel things we're we're not aware of the language around them and so transgression is the only way to it's the only way to sort of deal with that feeling is to replicate harm or to reenact harm and yeah i, I don't know I, if i'm making sense yeah I, I mean yeah i have so many things to say so <laughs> let's see let me let me right <laughs> so let's see so like first i want to say you know, uh, so I wrote 
a short story that came out like uh, last year in the Stinging Fly, this Irish literary journal. It's called Tell Someone. And it's about someone who had who who was molested as a child by their father fearing like it's it's a kind of a horror story it's about someone being afraid that they're going to like molest their kid when they're born and they oh keep like his wife is pregnant and he keeps asking himself what if it's a boy what if it's a boy and like but the whole story circles around how nobody is able to talk about it like even if someone were to bring that up in therapy in a lot of places, the therapist is obligated to call the police, like in instances. So, and then like he's talking to his brother who's been molested by their father too. And his brother, while he, the main character kind of actually doesn't have these feelings, it seems as if his brother maybe had, and he's expressing them as like, um, what do I do? He's saying that to his brother. And, and he's like, you can't tell me about this. Like, don't talk about this. And so it's the way in which the silencing of like all the aspects of it, the abuse that's done, the way in which abuse usually takes place, which is not usually a violent in the standard physically holding right. someone down sense right. to kids, right. the kinds of silencing that follow from not seeing that model of abuse. And so thinking, oh, it must mm. be my fault because it didn't look exactly. like that. Um the kinds of silence that come from seeking help to heal from the abuse. And then people who are having those feelings going to seek help, mm -hmm. the silence that comes from not even being able to talk about any of this shit, mm -hmm. like on, on so many levels, silencing, silencing, silencing. It is that kind of dismemberment. It's like a real like wound creator. So I was saying, thinking about that and thinking about how much then restorative justice is like, so mm -hmm. and abolitionism. Yeah, right are yeah. absolutely needed because they're the mm -hmm. only things that permit speaking. Like there's no other way to speak without those. So that's a healing of a, a way that cultural healing can give healing to each other. But for that cultural healing to happen, people have to speak out about their own experiences. So it's, yeah. you know, like who's going <laughs> to, who's going to do it first. And then I was thinking about um, the, I used to say sort of flippantly when I would give talks that like, I mean, this is a joke, but you'll see what I mean. I would, you say like, if you haven't had sex with a thousand people, at least I don't want to hear a, your opinion about sex because all I, I, what I, you're, everybody's an expert in a sense on their own sexuality, but they're not necessarily someone who's thought deeply or engaged with sex, which is very mm. Thing, it's very different you know um because that's what you're talking about with eroticism is like mm -hmm. in in my interpretation what you said is like that's yes that's the plant that's the air that's the exchange that's the way we're in and out of one another that's the connectivity but like that's not what people can understand just through looking at their own sexuality which often is totally certain and also completely fragile or if it's not mm -hmm. fluid it's fragile mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and then finally <laughs> just to bring it to another point but it's like i had a feeling this was going to happen with you by the way i was like i'm just gonna like we're just gonna like keep going off on like you know the paragraphs that happen <laughs> after the asterisks where like we jump <laughs> to another topic and then back to the main thread but like <laughs> i was thinking about the destructive thing, like as someone who has struggled with 
suicidal depression for most of his life until it lifted for various mm. reasons, which we could talk about or not. But it like my sense of wanting to kill myself was always really uh, a distortion of something good, which was my declaration of freedom. It was like, I can do this. Wow. I'm out when I want to be out. Fuck you. I'm out into my mm. own pain. And it's a total confusion because one, that's not how the afterlife or reincarnation or any of that kind of stuff works. It wouldn't help me in any of those ways. Mm. And when I finally understood, like, you're going to be getting rid of the body, which is the sacred site where you can actually change the things that are happening. Totally. It was like, can't exactly. kill yourself anymore. You know, Ooh. you're going to be blowing up the sacred boulder Ooh. where you've, yeah, a lit, oh uh, you know, light, yeah. light it up on this planet yeah. this time around. But like, I see what you're saying when you're saying, like, I was seeking something, the destructive impulse or whatever, that is the freedom impulse, but it's with any kind of destruction, usually even when it's when people are like, let's burn, burn it all down. Let's destroy the system. Like whatever. I always see like an ego aspect there. That's mm. not, uh, not refined in the way yeah, that exactly. it needs to be. And so it can only hit a limit where all can do mm-hmm. is meet something mm-hmm. with blunt mm-hmm. or traumatic mm-hmm. or a really forceful uh, mm-hmm. encounter. Mm-hmm. Explosive, explosive, an explosion has no delicacy. There's no nuance to an explosion. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, like it's, I mean, fuck, like uh, I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> Firstly, like that short story is profound. Um, I want to read it. I, I think I intimate this in the book. I've never publicly spoken this out loud, but I have um, experienced for the last couple of years a lot of fear that I would sexually abuse a child Mm -hmm. and I don't want to have children for that reason. And I have, I have no, like, it's not like palpable, but it's Mm. like, it is a fear. And I think a lot of children, a lot of adults that were sexually abused as children, I think really, really battle with that, you know, and I, I have worked. I'm so grateful that I have worked with a lot of child sexual abuse survivors. So I have a lot of, I guess, feedback of, of, mm-hmm. of certain things, you know, like it's very healing to be like, to come to move out of shame and to move out of like, even sharing this with you though, my heart's like pounding. Cause it's I like, know. So- <laughs> I know. I'm so- thank you for sharing it. Cause it's so, it's so intense. I mean, those were fears it's I had so intense. survived yeah. that as a kid, but it was like, I realized that they, when I realized that they weren't real desires, but it was more right. the fear that was there. Yeah. But then it yeah. made me think about the person who did that to me. I was like, fuck, yeah. did they go through that? Cause I know the person who yeah. did it to me was probably because of other stuff, like molested as a kid. I'm like, did they go through that and then find the desire there? Fuck, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's what we're saying. It's not even desire. And this is what I was saying earlier too. It's like, mm-hmm the conditioning takes over or like there's um i'm seeing it in this like relationship that i'm currently in and like when we're fighting sometimes like a par- a, a younger part of me emerges and takes over and i don't understand it's like what the fuck and all of a sudden <laughs> you know uh, all of a sudden 
I understand that I'm in a reenactment mm -hmm. and because I'm reenacting a childhood situation. And I, I wonder if it's like the specter, it's this phantom that takes over you. And it's the only, cause it's, I think a lot of us also don't, are not encouraged to think deeply about ourselves and uh, to be inquisitive and curious about why we are the way that we are. So if you're not doing therapy, if you're not, you know, fucking sitting with ayahuasca or whatever, if you're not doing whatever work you need to do, honestly, everyone needs to be doing therapy. But it, I think that it, that self-reflection is not present when that self-reflection is not present it's easy to replicate harm. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that that's sort of where in this, like, just like people not, because there's so much remorse after too, right? There's so much shame. There's so much remorse. And, and this is like sexual, I'm speaking quite broadly. I apologize, but I do think that there's thematics here and there's patterns here and it's important for us to acknowledge those things and to be able to be like, and this is what my hearing looks like to just sort of put the jigsaw together and be like, this goes here. Okay. That is how this works. Okay. Like if I don't, so if I don't do that, I won't keep doing this, you know, like, and that is um, sadly, yeah, it's non-existent. And so like, thank you for writing this, short story and thank you for you yeah. know, sharing what you shared because it's 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 so rewarding to like talk about it like it's 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 changed my life like it truly like the moment I publicly started talking about my sexual abuse my life changed like similarly like I think I just felt like I didn't need to die anymore I didn't need to punish myself anymore I didn't need to go to oblivion because actually what i had survived was okay like it was it happened you know like it it is it has given me this exceptional connection and dispos disposition with people who like have never seen themselves reflected in the world before and like have so much self-hatred and to be able to sort of like meet people there it's just so it's it's an act of god this is an act of god you know i really feel it i was so moved by your ability in your writing to name also the spiritual contours of all that you were encountering and going through i mean i my my ability to actually getting to a place where where I was what I was saying was real because it actually reflected the spiritual experiences I was having I mean there's some weird dark mirror in that about being able to talk about the abuse that mm. you know I I work through and with as well and I think for you too it's like maybe you can see that that speaking there's a there's this moment in um, Rudolf Steiner's life where he was like in his 40s or something. No, it was in his 30s. I forget what year it was, but he was just always surrounded by all this like spiritual 
these spiritual events and his spiritual perception and all that. And at a certain point he was like, he said, the main question that all I was concerned about at that time was, shall I speak? Shall I speak? Because he'd written about Goethe and flowers and science and all this and philosophy and all this. But he was like, I have to begin to say this stuff at a certain point, because otherwise there's no integrity in it at all. And finding being able to come into just the ability to say it in any area, it's so important. But then also, (laughs) but then that gets seized and distorted as well by the whole like attention Mm. economy around Mm. getting, being like, you know, write your victimhood piece. I mean, this isn't Mm -hmm. happening quite as much anymore, thank God, but like write your victimhood piece for, you know, 200 bucks and it'll be online about the worst thing that's ever happened to you and forgotten (laughs) forever, you know? And then like, I think about, you know, some certain people who write these memoirs that you know they they're <laughs> I'm not going to name any names but I'm just thinking about a certain memoir that was just about someone who went through a horrible experience and people kept saying you're so brave you're so brave and I kept thinking when I read that people's responses to this memoir which was I thought not very well written it might have been the most expressive thing that person could do and so I'm not berating them for expressing on a personal level but as a book I was thinking this isn't that good. But then I think that's that pulling a part of the scene put me in this place where I was like, how do I know that this was actually good for the person to do? How do I know that expressing was actually brave? Because we can even, we're so crafty with trauma and damage that we can traumatize ourselves by all kinds of methods of healing, things that we think are healing us and brave and good for us. So one, I want to know like I want actually I, I want to know how you navigate that because I don't yeah. think you do that obviously because I was very excited to have a conversation with you on the show and you do good shit but it's like how do you how do you know like I, or do you just not know and you're like fuck it I I can't always know or what what is it I think it's having a spiritual practice and and uh, understanding, you know, like there's there is a limitation to what you share and what you also know, you know, like that's I'm acknowledging that like I'm in this journey. I'm I'm in it. So that means that there are things that I'm going to discover that I didn't yet know about myself or that mm-hmm. there's going to be layers that I, you know, couldn't yet, you know, uncover and like I might even challenge certain parts of myself and like, you know, question mm. again, did, is that exactly how it happened? I think as a writer, as an artist, it's important to do those things. I want to be a writer of immense integrity. I'm not saying that I'm there yet. I'm saying I'm trying though. I'm trying really hard to be correct with my word. Not only when I speak out loud, actually that's even harder, but very much so in my in my writing as you know as a public intellectual at this point i'm like okay like i have to have value for what i am putting out there um i think that trauma porn and like you know i hate that term actually but i think that it's overused a lot in american culture and i've had a lot of people especially when i was touring with the book just be like how much is too much and also like yeah, when do you when do you know enough is enough and also like how much is it okay to share and it's something that I think about a lot because I think that that goalpost is ever changing and and um 
it's important to know that, to acknowledge that, you know, like, I mean, even though I've, I've written something that's deeply personal, I feel like a very private person online. Mm -hmm. I, I don't I actually feel like a very private person. I don't think a lot of people really know me. They know my life story, maybe if they've read the book, but even then they don't, they don't really, you know me if you, if you talk to me, if you, if, if we're in dialogue, you know, like those are, those are the ways that you, you get to know me. I feel very like, I think, protective of that and so it's also knowing that like I don't owe anyone anything about my life I don't owe anything I don't owe anyone I felt like I owed society a lot and then in the last couple of years uh the experiences that I've had of just like people demanding or requiring certain things of me um, like readers just you know on Instagram like kind of I think like really being demanding and entitled to my life has made me be like no I I have to have a boundary and I have to know what that boundary is and also that boundary may change like if you meet me in person I'm probably a lot warmer and kinder than <laughs> I am online you know like and there's and I'm actually a very personable person I really love people that's there's a lot of like you know contrast here like in, in juxtaposition in my own personality I love people I love humans and I'm immensely self-protective these days um and I think that goes into the writing I think that that is also knowing like okay how much do I share like I mm -hmm. resent a little bit that you know my I, I think that there's a lot of pejorative when we talk about women and especially women writing. And I've experienced a lot of like, you know, people calling me in, an influencer. And I'm like, babes, I've been writing for 12 years, like <laughs> professionally. Uh -huh. Like, are you kidding me? And so like, I think it's, 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 it, it's been a sort of like a refining of like, I don't want, and maybe this is ego too, I don't want people to lessen my work because of the internet, because it's easier to be like, oh, you just wrote personal essays, you know, for many years. And um, I'm showing you a lot of my insecurities of like what I battle <laughs> with, you know, and like feeling, you know, I didn't go to university. I don't have a degree. I, I, I started writing on my own and I have achieved it on my own and it makes me feel very insecure about it mm -hmm. at times and I've also experienced a lot of things in my professional life which has made me realize that people don't have respect I mean it's what you said in the beginning like people don't like in 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 spaces of like intellect people don't have space for god or or, or sex and I think that like my writing, because it's emotional, because it's personal, has been sort of relegated to like, sort of like a more like pop kind of thing. I don't even understand why. And so over the years, I've really had to be like, what kind of writer do I want to be? I love this idea of Steiner being like, what, you know, I can't remember exactly what he said, but like, what do I share? Like, do I share this? You know, and I think over over the years, I've really had to be like, no, I'm harnessing, I'm taking back all of this stuff. You don't get to define what I 
what I am. I'm, but I'm going to make this very clear. This is who I am. And this is what I stand on. You know, this is my experience. And from, you know, so there's, there's, there's all this explanation if you want it, but my writing and my art is mine and I get to define it and I get to be playful with it. Mm. And I get to understand that I'm not just a writer who writes about trauma. I'm moving through and beyond that. I am limitless. And I feel that a lot these days of just like, mm. I went through a very deep depression after the book came out, after Who Was Wellness 4 came out. I literally only just came out of it. And I think, you know, and you said this earlier too, it's like that feeling of you put, you know, you put your entire life out and you're getting $200 for it. Like, it's like, I wrote this entire book and I felt very deflated by the response. And I, I don't even know what it is that I wanted, but I felt very, very deflated. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was like embarrassing to me that people had my life story, you know, like, and that I had sold it for $90,000, you know, like, I'm just like, what the fuck? Like this, this is what I fucking get. And I went through a deep, deep spiritual crisis of like, well, why did I share all of that? Why did I share it? And I think the more that I understood that like, it was, I'm a channel. I'm a vessel. I definitely feel that every day of my life. And it helps me when that spiritual practice practice is strong. I don't falter from it anymore. It's been like three years of consistent praying of meditation every day of, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I sit with grandmother ayahuasca often. I do a lot of different kind of work in order to sort of maintain, maintain, the healing process and maintain the kind of, you know, momentum of it. You know, you, you don't stop. You can't ever stop. And that has been my journey. You know, I want to be a death doula. I want to serve ayahuasca. I want to go to the jungle and learn all of these things. I want to, I want to continuously expand as a human being and writing is only one element of that work. And it's where I come to, understand myself writing is an integral part of who I am we are interconnected and I think that's why I produce so much work because I am a writer through and through that's how I process anything Mm -hmm. and so I know I will consistently make work um writing work but this other these other parts of my life are as important and I have to foster them and I have to understand that this livelihood this you know this professional life is only one component of that. And the more I kind of ground myself in my own story, in my own awareness, in my own frameworking, in my own healing, in my own journey, whilst also understanding, leaving space for other people and their stories, you know, like I, I am in a literal process of getting my mother to admit to what she's done. I have had to face that with my dad and my sister. They both had to sign off on a book they didn't want to read. You know, it's like there's deep implications for what I say and what I write about. 
and um, you know, who's one was four went through a very intense legal process, and my UK and Australian publisher decided to drop me, which was very painful. So you know, there's been so many things that have come that have been brutal, but the one thing that has helped me remain firm and and the work is that because I have a spiritual practice that allows me to know when to speak, when not to speak, what to say, what not to say. Mm-hmm. And also to have that relationship with myself that I'm deeply invested in where I'm constantly searching further and deeper into who I am and what I stand for. I want to submit entirely. Um, and that is, I think, what grounds me is the understanding that they're therefore like mm. I'm speaking with allowance and I'm speaking with with that kind of graciousness that I have always longed to embody. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think it, there's so much like again, there's so much there. I think one just to say that the ability to present yourself and say here's me and i'm always moving i'm always changing i'm always growing sometimes that might look like backtracking to you guys sometimes that might look whatever that is a reflection of <clears throat> the encounter with spirit our lives are our spiritual text like the one true spiritual text yeah. really is our life and like any spiritual text but this one's even more profound every time you read it something new comes you know something new arrives yeah. and i think you know when you <laughs> when you read over your life again something new will show up a new meaning you know the parable mm-hmm. you'll find that extra layer of it and I mean, unfortunately, what that sometimes means is that all the work we've done does nothing to prepare us for the next encounter Mm. or the next challenge, because all that work was to get us to the point where we were at that challenge, (laughs) not not to allow us to face it exactly, but just to get us to the point where we are alongside it, you know, for a bit. And that means that a lot of things will get reshuffled, re you know, remixed and re um, assembled and that will look strange to people. And so I I understand that, but the one thing that's constant, which I think is what you're expressing, which is very beautiful for me, I would say it's not practice or anything because that will all change as well, but rather there's a, there's a total unwaveringness from seeing things from a spiritual perspective. And so, and from there, I know that I am whole. From there, I mean, I only had one moment probably ever in my life when I was an atheist, and it lasted for about a minute and a half. I was reading this thing by Wittgenstein, and I don't even remember what he said, but I remember or wrote, but I remember reading this thing, and I was like, oh, fuck. And then I sat with it for a minute. I was like, oh, but, and I then I moved on. But it was this moment where I've had moments where the presence of spirit and God have just totally withdrawn where it was something like, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's objection. What What is Simone Weil? She calls it something, but it's just really profound where she's like, you know, it's worse than depression. It's worse than whatever. You actually have mm-hmm. no access to the mm-hmm. spiritual realm anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's so painful. And, and then, you know, like I, I came back to it as well, but that unwaveringness 
indicates that I've at least touched one aspect of myself that's whole because that it doesn't go away. And I, I don't have to even struggle to make it not waver. I have to struggle to do the practice to go deeper with it. But the, 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 the seeingness, you know, that's there all the time. And, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about your book, your books, but particularly who is wellness for, I was thinking about, um, you know, when I was talking with people about my novel coming out last year, like the marketing people, all these people that I love, by the way, so this is not a dig on them, but like, they were like, okay, so this is about toxic masculinity. We'll label as queer fiction, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I was like, no, no, we're not doing any of that. Not because that doesn't matter to me, but no, this is a novel. Like the literary realm has its own merits. And it was weird. Cause I was like, no, the novel is a novel, <laughs> but the reason I did that was not because I dislike those things, but I was thinking people will find their resonance with those themes out of their own freedom, mm. because this is in the cultural and artistic and spiritual realm. So that means that they have to be able to approach it as, you know, individuated beings. And if they resonate with the Arab character that's like the only gay person in the town, if they resonate with the sexual repression and, or the homophobia, or they resonate with that fucking great, like let them resonate with it. But that has to be out of their own freedom because Mm -hmm. everybody needs to be able to come to this in their own way. And that got Mm -hmm. me thinking like, fuck, like uh, it actually um, lit up in me when Tori Peters said this thing, when I saw Tori Peters speak at a literary conference here and she was like look i wrote detransition baby for trans women because um otherwise i was gonna have to lead everybody through all the steps about being trans this being trans that blah 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 and i didn't want to do that and that actually helped keep me on my game because trans women would just be fucking bored with that shit because it's been reiterated Mm -hmm. so many times Mm -hmm. and what that made me realize was i was like fuck like marginalized people are not allowed to write fiction like we're not allowed to in the sense that it always has to be educational for a certain mm-hmm. cohort of people who are curating mm-hmm. the art. Mm-hmm. And then that made me think like that, sorry, it's going to leave me a little ways and then I'll open it up to you. But it was like the, that whole thing of like, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Well, sure. Okay. But like, why are the people who that moving train affects the most always expected to be the ones that always write about the fucking train? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. who pushed me on the fucking train? Mm -hmm. And what if I just decided Mm -hmm. I'm not taking that shit on board all the Mm -hmm. time, I'm Mm -hmm. going to write whatever the fuck I want. Why Mm -hmm. are there not more people who are able, who are writers of color, who are um, LGBT writers, who are, you know, whatever sex worker writers are not allowed to write about things that don't directly name all that stuff. And that's not to devalue the books I do. Obviously I love a lot of them. They're very important, but there are all these ways in which it creeps in. So this brings me to the question basically, which is that when I, one of the wounds that I see that we need to apply um, a poultice to, and we need to bring some healing to is actually one that's created by something that seems to be helping us, which is 
this statement that everything is political. I do think mm. I do think it's better to say everything's political than I'm just not a political person. Like obviously that's mm. way mm. bullshit. But the mm. ways in which cultural, spiritual things are expected to be in a kind of submissive tone to the political is the exact thing that you name again and again in your book, which is like, this, like, why is astrology, why is Ayurveda not allowed into leftist discourse, organizing mm-hmm. discourse, mm-hmm. real political theory discussions? And in fact, not just mm-hmm. not allowed in, but like condemned to mm-hmm. the, you know, the archive of fascism or whatever, because Adorno wrote some b- book about hating horoscopes. You know, it's like, why are we doing this, you know, and there are things about it. It's not even that deep though. Like they're just like, that sounds dumb, you know? Yeah, exactly. exactly. But that it's a healing move. Like you see, it's like the ways in which it can wound art. It can wound writers. It can wound the Mm -hmm. cultural sphere Mm -hmm. just to make everything follow into not only the political sphere, which is a problem in itself, but a sphere, a particular kind of politics, you know, and I find it really like there's so much healing needed there and it is so much of what you do with your art is all right I'm going to show you that there's a wound here and I'm going to take steps to heal this wound by showing you where that wound is in me but how do we how do we then to bring this forward like how do we do it more obviously it's just showing up more because more there's some regard now for people from different communities entering leftist spaces and a lot of those people are like guess what i use tarot cards guess what i'm from a culture that was colonized that used to have all these spiritual practices guess what like what are you just going to kick me out okay you know like so Mm -hmm. but how do we do that work a bit more is what's interesting to me because it's healing work yeah i think that we I think that there is this sort of weird bind with intellectualism or intellectual spaces, leftist spaces that um, <laughs> are that it, it's, I think it's a masculine drive. It's like sort of what I talk about in the book, the Western sciences and, and the Descartes theory of like the mind is, 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 is the, the only in total, um, thing worthy of our attention you know the gut forget about it get forget about you know intuition like that shit's ridiculous you know like the ways in which i know that i didn't the one of the reasons i didn't finish school is because i hate bureaucracy because it is always trying to shape you into something that is right societally and I don't think like that. I don't, I don't want to think like that. That's not how, that's not, that's not what I want to give to the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think that again, like kind of for me, I don't, I don't think I've, I have a choice. I, I, I feel as though being in a, in a divine relationship with spirit, being in a, in relationship to nature and spirit i feel a lot of social responsibility to 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 nature to mother earth to spirit and i um 
I've kind of left a lot of like sort of organizing spaces and I'm only really a part of degrowth now. And I write about degrowth in the book. And degrowth is uh, Marcy Slimness group. And it's all about um, essentially understanding that we have to, in order to sort of collapse capitalism, I don't know if that's possible, but you know, let's just say it is, in order to collapse capitalism, we have to really look at our own consumption. And that's where everything kind of comes from. Like, how are we consuming? Um, and within this space, I've really allowed myself to bring in spirituality, to bring in God, to talk about care. Um, and care is sort of the way that I kind of like bring this conversation in. Like, we owe each other care. We are responsible one for one another, not like in a pushy way, like you owe me something, but like in a way that we are all interconnected and therefore, you know, uh, there is a certain amount of reliance that as an individualist society, as a capitalist society, as a colonized society, we've been told, actually, you don't need anything. Just, just rely on yourself. Fuck, fuck your neighbor, fuck your extended family, fuck everybody. It's you and your babies. Oh, you don't have any babies? Okay, well, then you're fucked. <laughs> and that's that's the system, you know. And I, you know, you and I both know, like, in queer spaces, like, there is a reimagining of what family looks like because your chosen family is everything, you know. Like, sometimes it's all that you have because your actual family won't talk to you anymore. And so there's a constant reshifting and um, reimagining. And I think that that's what is required of a lot of intellectual spaces. It's a reimagining, but it's so, um, there's such a stronghold of the status quo. There's so much gatekeeping. There's so much, you know, like, um, and I experience this a lot, fucking class warfare, because there's all of this like private ways that people are, you know, like rich, secretly rich, or, you know, secretly, like, mm -hmm. come from a lot of privilege and, like, go to all these fancy schools. And I have lost a lot of friends because I, again, you know, didn't go to school. And I see the mechanisms at play all the time. I think a lot of my frustration for who was wellness for is that it's a pretty seminal text. And it really didn't receive any acknowledgement in, like, you know, for awards or for grants. Like, I've applied mm -hmm. for so many and I just keep. I keep not getting them. And so I think that that's kind of forcing me to know that I can't rely on these systems. These systems are not built for me, for someone like me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what can I do? I can create a new genre for myself <laughs> and a new, you know, a new shape and a new form that allows me to just fucking speak because this is what I've, you know, people want to denigrate social media like i get so pissed when people call ruby core an instagram poet it's just another way to dismiss her you don't have to fucking like her work mm. that's not the point this person is a new york times bestseller mm. three times she self-published her own book can we have can we give her a little bit more respect mm -hmm. like i i see how um i actually tried to profile ruby in the new york times once and they told me we don't profile people like her <laughs> and you know like and i i have to understand that i was also she is she is of my you know of my uh 
of my kin kind you know because like we are we both kind of just did it our own way and I think that's why a lot of people don't like her and I I think a lot of people don't like women especially women of color who find their own way to the top and it's it's incredibly threatening and I think that that's kind of cool for me because I'm just like yeah I get to fucking do whatever I want then and that is like how I'm pushing this spiritual agenda I'm just like you don't even have to listen to me if you don't want to. Mm. I'm here for the people who want to hear. I'm here for the people who are actively trying to be like, I need to hear what you have to tell me. I actually want to heal. You don't even have to believe that I'm healing. Fuck it. I don't care. If if you need this, find me. And that, I think, has mm. been my way of connecting to the audiences because I'm not getting the support other writers are getting. I'm not getting any institutional support. So uh -huh. I have to do it my way. It, I'm so like, I'm like brimming, like to speak on that because like, I was so afraid before my book came out. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's out from Norton, you know, in the U S and then in Ireland, UK, it's basically penguin. So like it did get a like, stamp, yeah. you know, although whatever <laughs> we could talk about, navigating some of that later mm -hmm. norton's been the like angels they're great their work around they're awesome but like but like i was so worried <laughs> i don't and i don't even know why but i kept thinking like fuck i became notable because i was in porn and i was like the smart porn star and then i was doing sex worker act rights activism and i was like writing articles about stuff and then i had a podcast and i was talking to people that sex worker people shouldn't talk to like writers and musicians and blah 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 and now like you know i all that started just sort of falling away as i made my path to where i wanted to be all the sort of fears about that but i had this fear that i was like you know there's these like gay writers this certain cadre of gay writers and they all blurb each other's work. They all really like mm -hmm. into each other. And they write these really, to me, kind of like bland books. And they're in the cultural curation section. And I didn't do it their way. So they're going to fucking hate me. They're going to slam the book. They're not going to like me. So I have yeah. no choice but to make myself actually successful, mm -hmm. which is what I did mm -hmm. with all the other things I did in my life mm -hmm. on my own and like, fuck it. Mm -hmm. Now, it was great to have a publisher come and assist me and help me. And that was fucking awesome. But what I found was that like those people actually <laughs> hated me so much that they didn't actually even even say anything about me, which was, thank God, I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't enter it, like experience the opposition aspect of it, that it was more just mm. like, you know, like good. But when I look back on those fears, I'm like, why the fuck did I allow myself to again get entangled in oh, those people aren't going to like me because yeah. I didn't go on the phony version of the spiritual quest to this point where I just kind of bought it yeah. or, yeah. you know, made false alliances or whatever. And instead just decided to do why the fuck would I have even like, and as soon as I realized that it was so liberating, cause I was like, I'm just actually like, we're on different timelines. Like, I'm just doing this thing. They're doing that thing. And like, God bless them. And it also helped me love them. Cause I was like, that's mm. actually, they're in their own ferment and mm. I'm just not in that mm. solution, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it does get easier to see how other people are so bound by this, yeah. the mechanics of it and to feel kind of not in a shitty way, but just to feel sorry because <laughs> it's, it's sad. It's sad that people feel so enraptured and like people, I think also like queer folks, um, other folks of color, like it's like it's you know it's really wild like and and that is i think the marker of how successful capitalism is it makes you buy into everything mm. and this is just another you know arm of capitalism um if you know and i always find it interesting like like if i got institutional support like if i got like university money for example or whatever people wouldn't come for me in the same way that like when I, I worked with this Italian brand, Laura Piana, last year, and I got hit it on, like hit it on. And it was brutal. But I was just like, you hate me because I'm working with, yeah, like, yeah, this is a luxury brand, totally. But what if I work with Harvard? What if I was a professor at Harvard? <laughs> right, you right, know, like, totally. that's okay. That's right, okay. Right. You can so work with the people that are breeding politicians that destroy the world. But if it's a fucking fashion label, yeah. You're fucked. You're, you know, how you're, you're not an anti-capitalist. Fuck you. Yeah. And it, it just, it just really made me see the holes mm. in people's own arguments, you know, mm. and, and sort of like, um, I, so, someone was like, you know, you keep talking about how you're like socialist Marxist family. Well, Pete Puttajed, Puttajed, I can't remember what say his name, also come, come from a Marxist oh, yeah. family. <laughs> and she was like, you know, I think it was, she said, it, I think that's a recessive gene. I think mean, that's verbatim what she said. And I was just like, and then like, and then like the same person was like, don't take what I'm saying personally. And I'm just like, oh my God, it's, <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing that like people's own classism shows all the time, you know, and like their own sort of, we, yeah, we bought into this mythology so much, the mythology of America to the construction of a world. It's an entire mythology. And I know that so clearly when I'm doing psychedelics and all of a sudden you come out of this fucking thing. And, you know, again, this is woo-woo language, but the Matrix is, is we know it's real. You know, the Wachowski sisters knew what the fuck they were doing. And, like, it's, it's, it's about something that we've all just decided on. We've all decided that this is society and this is how we live and this is these are the rules and this is how we follow them mm. and i i'm like i think in conversation and also like specifically right now just like talking to you and hearing your story and hearing like how you got there it's just like it's actually really encouraging to me and exciting to me that we live in these times and also that you and i exist that we're able to make work that we are um so expansive and you know beyond containment and also <laughs> beyond explanation you know like i feel as i said earlier i feel limitless you know i'm just like i'm i have nothing to conform to i am just a completely free being and that is in a moment like this, I can see that evolution and that evolutionary kind of like 
privilege that I have, that I've done all of this work that has led me here, and that I have the foundation that I have of God and spirit and to and to sort of get so much from from the devastation of my own life. You know, like the way that I was pushed into isolation. Like that has been a wild gift because it's it's through that compression a diamond was born and I really feel like I am a diamond that is just even if no one else can see it I'm just like trying to just you know shape myself and be proud of what I am and to feel like yeah this is fucking me and this is you know these are all of the elements of me and I I want to be seen as that and I and I think that that it's so hard for us probably to do this work and it's so lonely because this work is so necessary. We're not confining ourselves to the ordinary path. It's a road less traveled. And like when I think of the poets, when I think of the philosophers, when I think of the thinkers and the physicians and all of the people, you know, that I look to, it's the people that always thought outside of those specific bounds, you know, that like believed in universes and potential in, you know, that's why I love abolition so much. That's why I hopefully, you know, I believe that I'm an abolitionist and I, I work toward that end into that goal. Um, Transformative justice is something that runs in my, in my bloodstream because I am having to face my own mother, who's my abuser, you know, it, it immediately makes you have to come to terms with yourself on such a deep, deep soul level to understand that karmic link. You know, like I, I have this poem, my next book comes out this year. It's a book of poems called Survival Takes a Wild Imagination. And there's a poem in there. Um, a lot of the poems, no surprises, they're about my mom, but it's also the last time that I feel like I want to talk about my mom. For a while, like I'm, I think like this is the book where I'm like, okay, I'm putting you to rest. But there's this moment where I can't even remember what the poem's called, but it's I say our our destinies are linked, and that's how the poem ends. And talking to my mom, and I feel that you know, I think that on a karmic level, on a soul level, our work is linked. You know, my survival, my healing. And I don't talk to her anymore. So there's no way of me knowing this. Like, I don't talk directly to her. I talk, you know, to my sister and my father who, they don't actually even communicate with me. I'm not in communication with my mom. But um, no matter what, I know that my healing is going to impact her. It's going to impact her karma on, a, on, on so many different levels. And I think that that work is very clear to me in this moment. It's very clear to me that this this is why I do this work. This is why I have toiled my entire life to to be someone because I didn't get the silver spoon. I didn't get the acknowledgement. I didn't get even a teacher to be like, I see you. Nobody lifted me up. I had to lift myself up on my own. And I have had a lot of grief about that my entire life. Why am I always being trampled on? Why can't I just be elevated why can't someone see me and actually want to lift me up 
you know, like bring me to another plane. And I've seen so many people get that. And I think that I, I deeply feel this, that the, the only reason that this is my path is because I have chosen it karmically to, to do this work and to show up in this way. I love that you're talking about karma there because like, you know, it, it, it's echoing a, uh, something that you write about, which is that illness and pain and all that is, is a very, uh, is, is a very detailed, rich form of communication from, you know, an aspect of yourself that knows what you, <laughs> what you don't know, what you know, but don't know, <laughs> it knows. And it's issuing a communication and, you know, you met, you touch on it as the solar plexus is part of it, you know, um, and the solar plexus. So just uh, as a, for, for people that don't know the word origin really means it, like it means the intricate network of the sun. So that's the solar plexus. And so that is so beautiful, right? So that intricate network of the sun is that place where, there's a knowingness about you. And even if, if people just want to go there for a second, as they listen to this, just touch into that part, you know, right. Little, little bit lower than your heart, you know, where your rib cage and your belly are, you know, and just go there and experience that intricate network of the sun. And you can bring it up to your heart too. Just an identification and moving that communication. I think people, might have a knee-jerk reaction like, oh, like are you're saying that illness is, you know, um, Ill- illness is just something that you haven't resolved or illness is uh, something that you haven't uh, worked through. So it's your fault, right? This is, I wrote this whole essay about this called When You're Sick, You'll Wait for the Answer and None Will Come about my cancer diagnosis, my my mom's death from cancer and Susan Sontag's death from cancer and how I love Susan Sontag, but illness's metaphor, I think, is her one wildly wrong book. But people would say, like, <laughs> you you don't you don't get where, oh, like it's your fault if you're saying that it's a communication, because that's you sort of condemning yourself. Or with reincarnation, and this is what I was talking about the karma part, like, oh, like so you reincarnated because your karma says that you deserve this, right? And even that can get perverted into the caste system or whatever. But rather, if we look to the solar plexus and that intricate communication, the intricate network of the sun, we can say that, that the illness, that the problems that we face are communications to yourself from something that recognizes your full range of being, that wow. all of those lifetimes look in, on, even the ones that are coming, you know, the aspects look in on you and they say, okay, this is going on. There's connection here. Let's talk about it, <laughs> you know? And yeah, there are parts of you that probably would blame yourself or condemn yourself or say it was your fault. We do that in this lifetime even. So we don't have to talk mm-hmm. about it in some reincarnation mm-hmm. way, but there's the loving aspects that are just saying, okay, we see you. Let's have this conversation. And so I love the way that you frame that. And I also love that you framed it as talking to your mother without talking to her and how we're linked. Because I think, and and I think this will be the last thing that we we discuss here, but so much of what I've been talking about lately is um, 
the ways in which people access spiritual practices, whether they're psychedelic drugs or magic or whatever, um, and the same way that they access wellness in the way you're talking about, which is mm. they use them to get things. They use them to make things happen. They use them to sort of um, get to a certain place, but there's not a giving backness there. And so what I was thinking about a lot before coming to speak with you today was what does wellness look like when we're not just giving back to the interconnectedness of human beings or even the earth or animals or plants or whatever, but actually giving back to the spiritual world itself, giving back to the um, nexus and congregation of beings that make up the entirety of existence, the evolving states of consciousness and love that are what composes being, what are the constitutive forces that are alive and aware and working with us all the time. What does wellness look like when we give back to that realm as well? N not only, and we haven't even begun to do this, as you point out, not only other people, not only the other, and not only the planet or ecosystems or whatever, but actually also to that spiritual world. Um, so I thought we'd maybe end by talking about that for a minute. Yeah, I love that. That was so beautiful and so profound. The intricate network of the sun. I'm going to think about that a lot. Um, I, I finish Who's Wellness For? The last chapter is about sacred reciprocity. And I think that that's kind of, in a way, maybe what you're talking, not entirely, but that's definitely how I see it. You know, this responsibility that we have the sacred contract that we have to ourselves. I think that the way that we pursue that is through dialogue with ourselves, through prayer, through meditation, through consensus, through pulling and unpulling and removing and reshaping and understanding and and being with yourself like being truly with yourself and you are not against yourself you are actually holistically there if if we're thinking of this like interconnected network of the sun you are the sun and you are sort of generating the possibility and the momentum of that expansion and, and that evolution. And I think it's feeling compelled by that responsibility and not drowned by it. That moves us to the next mm. point, you know, by gathering that responsibility and seeing the tenderness of God asking you to change, to giving you another vessel, another chance, another opportunity to shift your karma. And you're right, you know, I think I'm so glad you brought cast into this. Like, obviously, karma and like there's deeply dangerous ways that others can engage with this language. But if we are looking at it, at I believe what it means on a deeply sort of holistic holistic and philosophical level that the rishis were trying to make us understand, you know, what it is in the Vedas. It's like 
this is, we are all karmically interconnected. And the people that come into your life are a light and a torch, as is disease, to signal this is what needs to change. This is where you change this. This is what's wrong. This is what is happening. I mean, I am only like, you know, a little bit into my own journey, but like the ways in which I have developed like psychic ability is remarkable. And you are your own litmus test. We are forced to challenge ourselves, to doubt ourselves. So many of us don't even believe ourselves. Like <laughs> the ways in which you spiritually evolve is you begin to understand that you are a trustworthy person. And if you are not a trustworthy person, making yourself trustworthy. That mm -hmm. is the work. Mm -hmm. Trusting yourself, beginning that journey with self and being like, okay, what makes me a trustworthy person? These things? Okay, I'm going to do these things now. And I, that's that's what I've been doing. You know, I'm, I'm trusting myself. I, when I do something untrustworthy, I clock it immediately and I question myself. I ask myself why. I interrogate. And then I change. And it's, I don't know, it's like, it's the most honest work. And, and you know, that's it. It's the most honest work. I know all of our cultures were deeply rooted in some form of spirit and spiritual awareness and understanding that was removed through the church and through the sort of expansion of Christianity and sort of more puritanical ways of being. And we've severed this communication. We've severed our own awareness and we've severed who we are at the expense of who we are told we are. And I think that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fucking getting yourself back from the hands of these people and being like, no, I get to be in love with God. I get to dedicate my life to God. And I understand that this, this path is the only path that I came to do and everything else will fall into place. Mm -hmm. And that my life is that, that there's proof of that. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And I, I mean, I think. Listen, for anybody who hasn't read what Furry has written yet, I mean, just go and there are lot, there's lots, <laughs> there's lots of it. So go read it. But I mean, I think, listen, I mean, how many times do we hear of someone saying, okay, you're meditating. Great. Have you thought about what's actually happening here? Have you thought about why you're doing it, what that's connected to? And I think you've just summed up so much of what an answer to that can be a true answer, which is like, look, when we meditate, when we do our work, the spiritual world doesn't have to carry as much. It's not that the spiritual world experiences weight, but it can give so much more and open so much more when we carry when we hold with it by doing those practices. Mm -hmm. And I, and I just am so excited for the kinds of things that can open up in our political imagination, in our mm -hmm. economic imagination, much less our artistic mm -hmm. relational social you know, yeah. relations. So um, you really are opening, but 
with the work you're doing on your own in quotes, and also what you're offering out from that son. So um, I just want to thank you for doing that. And also I'm frustrated because I have 8 million other fucking things I want to talk with you about (laughs) Um, (laughs) to bring a whole picture instead of just the like fragments that we've put down today, but that's okay. It's like, they can be fragments. Like when you walk into the shop and you see all the different bins of different kinds of stones and you're like, I want one of everything. So go do that. And then, you know, maybe (laughs) you and I can have another conversation in the future about more. And I'm so thankful um, for your work and for just this conversation for Ria Roshin. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you everybody for listening to this wild ride with us. (laughs) Bye now. (laughs) 